Welcome back to the ADMS podcast. I'm Lauren Dela Cruz, and in today's episode, we're highlighting a recent talk from Dr. Ujul Gadaraju, who visited the ADMS Centre on March 24, 2023, for a guest talk titled The How, What, and Why of Effective Human AI Decision Making, or How I Discovered This Sisyphean Task. We're here to talk about effective human AI decision-making today, and I hope to share some interesting thoughts that we've been gathering over the last few years in this space, and uh, hopefully this will lead to a lot of fun discussions through the course of this evening. Uh, Danula has already done a fine job of telling you all what I tend to do every now and again. There we go. Uh, I'd like to position my research and the work we do in the space of trying to build better AI systems, right? And I like to think of this as what's the human quotient and what can we as humans do to help create better systems, AI systems that we can then use, right? And I like to think of it from the standpoint of computational roles that humans can play. Uh, You can think of this as AI that can be improved via human input. And I also like to think of this from the standpoint of the interactional role that humans tend to play with AI systems and what we can learn through those interactions to then build better AI systems in turn, right? So that's essentially the playing field that I try to operate on. I'm quite interested in conversational interfaces and what conversational agents and interactions can add to this particular context where HCI meets AI and humans tend to interact with AI systems with an increasing amount of regularity these days. And while I have a foot in the interactive information retrieval space, it's uh, a field I was relatively more active in during the course of my PhD and postdoc years. Uh, So every now and again, you'll see me dabble in that space as well. Uh, And while I've uh, spoken to some of you today, and I know that we share a few common grounds and interests in the space of XAI. That being said, let me walk us through an unusual beginning, but before I do that, I'll also say that a lot of the work that's been uh, done in the past is thanks to a lot of amazing collaborators and students who are part of our group and many others who aren't on this slide, but um, you know are equal contributors in many of the things I'll talk about today. And now that promised detour and unusual beginning, uh, I'll walk you through a little anecdote from Greek mythology, right? So, Some of us here have probably come across Sisyphus. Who knows who Sisyphus is? Some of us do, some of us don't. So I'll walk us through this little anecdote if I find a way to get my clicker going. So Sisyphus was the founder of a place called Ephira, right? And this is present day Corinth. Sisyphus was also at the other end of a very famous punishment. So for those of you who are familiar with Hades, who is the god of death and also the king of the underworld, he had an unfortunate, or at least from the standpoint of Sisyphus's uh, existence, an encounter with Sisyphus. So Sisyphus apparently cheated death twice. How exactly did he do it? Why did he do it? That's for you to unearth later on this evening at your own time. But the point is that Hades eventually punished him for cheating death twice. And what was his punishment? It's uh, an image that all of us have probably come across at some point in time or another, right? The punishment that was metered out was that Sisyphus had to carry this gigantic boulder up a hill. And each time he just about made it, the boulder would start rolling all the way back down. And he was punished to do this for the rest of his existence, right? For eternity. Now, hold that thought at the back of your heads and we'll come back to it at some point later this evening. Several millennia later, we're in present day Melbourne, where technology has been ravaging our realities with a fierce amount of uh, conviction, right? So we've seen that there have been revolutions in the last decade or so across several domains. I know some of us are dabbling in the context of transportation, health, finance, there's education, manufacturing, you name it. There've been a lot of revolutions in the recent past. Right? And this disruption most recently has also come through the proliferation of large language models. I'm sure a lot of us have been uh, you know, operating along these lines and have also been trying to understand how this would disrupt maybe a lot of the research we're currently doing. Right? Uh, for those of you who are uninitiated, chat GPT and GPT-4 has now uh, you know, been shown to be as good as humans in a lot of 
difficult tasks, things like the GRE writing, vocabulary, LSATs, right? It's placing in high percentiles that you'll actually associate with humans and outperforming certain humans, right? And in all of that context, well, and here's a little uh, tweet I plugged out from the co-founder of uh, OpenAI, Greg Brockman. And this was, I think, about five hours after they uh, announced that GBD4 was out and people could access it. So that's just, just goes to show how rapidly things are evolving, right? People are already after uh, GPD-5. And just earlier this morning, I learned about plugins that can be uh, integrated along with GPD-4 to do a lot of marvelous, unthinkable things, right? But all of that can potentially be misused, right? And much like history bears a lot of important lessons, I'd argue that AI is equally a double-edged sword. And I think many of us, because of the nature of work we're doing and the conversations I've had with you all through the course of today, I think agree with this fact that AI can be put to a lot of different uh, nefarious ends if used irresponsibly, right? So it's also a lot of uh, responsibility that comes alongside our own roles when we try to research this area and come up with better ways of augmenting human lives. Now, let's take a historical perspective on this very point, right? The cost that is concomitant with a lot of technolo technological advances is often a crippling uh, cost, right? And I'll try to make that case by walking through a few examples. Let's think about the benefits that we as the human species have been able to enjoy across centuries thanks to technological advances. I think if you think about the uh, energy sector in particular, there've been certain points in time where you could see and tell, well, this is exactly a point where, you know, the game changed, right? When you think about the energy sector, the invention of the steam engine was probably one of those first points. And then came, you know, perhaps the uh, internal combustion engine at some point, and then the jet engine, right? And along the way, there was the turboprop engine, all kinds of innovations that led to us being able to disrupt the energy sector and uh, benefit in unimaginable ways. Right? We also saw the expansion of food production thanks to industrial agriculture. That meant more people could produce more food and more people could you know, have consume more food and live more comfortably. There was a decline in infectious diseases, which then meant there was an increase in life expectancy across the world. But all of this also came at a lot of costs. Right? Climate change perhaps is the most emphatic of all of those. Uh, I don't have to you know, articulate that point uh, to greater depth. We've seen that there's been an increase in the extinction rate of species all around the world. Uh, you know, we're in Australia right now, and we know that the coral reefs are, uh, you know, probably at some point in time, maybe even within our lifetime, lifetime is going to become a thing of legend, right? Uh, there's been a negative impact of industrial agriculture as well. Uh, we've, we've also seen that there's an increase in proliferation of uh, weapons of mass destruction and casualties thanks to war. We're living those realities right now. While all of that's happening, we're also constantly consuming headlines along these lines where you know AI is probably going to destroy all of us and we're going to be ruled over by AI. Uh, will a robot steal your jobs? One of those conversations that's taking place across the globe in different corners, right? And these narratives, I'll argue, are quite overstated, sometimes very clickbaity and scientifically ridiculous, but they are taking place in the context that we live in. Right, And it's a seesaw of these extremes. This whole narrative is a seesaw between, is this a dazzling future that we're uh, going to wake up to, or is this going to be an absolute nightmare? Right, And the middle point, uh, where, which rejects these two extremities when it comes to the narrative, is this perspective of human-centered AI, right? where you want to try and build AI systems that don't just serve a mundane purpose, that don't exist for the sake of existence, but are truly serving the purpose that humans uh, need, right? So are you building a system that can augment a human uh, while this person's completing a task? Are you amplifying the abilities that humans already have? Right? Are you trying to empower people by providing them the agency to improve the experiences that they're indulging in, right? And that perspective is human-centered AI. Uh, and that's the axis along which I'd like to uh, extend the conversation for the rest of this talk. And uh, Ben Schneiderman's one of those 
pioneers of this perspective who's brought this to the fore and tried to articulate this in many meaningful ways. I'd like to give you a peek uh, into some of this. Uh, you may have seen this before, but Ben Schneidman talked about how it's important to think about human values when you begin to, before you begin to build systems, right? If you're building an AI system to solve a particular problem, what is exactly is this uh, going to do with respect to the human values, the rights that humans and users of these systems potentially have? Uh, what about constructs of justice and dignity, right? What about the individual goals that people who are using the system might potentially have? Is there any unintended consequence to the amount of creativity, responsibility, self-efficacy, things like that, that you know, might um, change as a result of this particular system that you might be building? What about the design aspirations? Is this going to be reliable? Is this robust across context? Is this trustworthy? Is this safe? Right? I'm sure a lot of us are using these words in this vocabulary to describe the solutions and systems we're building these days. But while we're thinking about all of this, it's also extremely important to think about the stakeholders. Right? And your stakeholders could be us researchers, developers of systems, could be business leaders, policy makers, right, and end users. And I heard from one or two of you today, you're also interested in not just the direct stakeholders, but stakeholders who are, you know, indirectly affected by some of these things, right? It's valuable to think about all of that. Because in that very conversation, there are a lot of threats as well, right, that you might discover, that you might not plan for, but encounter along the way. Essentially what's happening every morning you wake up to news, right? You realize that, hey, this is an unintended consequence no one thought about, but hey, here you go, right? Chat GPT, GPT-4, for example, it was in the news for some nefarious thing that they discovered uh, where I think it was the headlines uh, that, that were presented in emails or I, I don't quite know, I didn't read that story well enough, but there's constantly something the other that developers of systems discover after deployment, right? That's not a situation you wanna be in, especially if a large group of people can be affected negatively because of that. So what are the threats? What are the malicious actors who could potentially benefit from creating such technologies? What are the biases that can get propagated because of this? What are the potential flaws in systems and machines and softwares that propagate? Right? Valuable questions to think about as my Microsoft Excel thing gets verified. <laughs> and uh, we had the pleasure of having Ben Schneiderman over in, at the Academic Fringe Festival, one of these initiatives we started at the stroke of the pandemic. And if you'd like to hear more, do tune into uh, a conversation that we had with him uh, on this particular website of the Academic French Festival. Right, so something else I'd like to articulate before I dive into some of the things we've been doing is the balancing act of human control. Now, when you're trying to build AI systems that humans can potentially benefit from and can interact with to solve a particular task, it's also important to think about the axis of control. Right now, when you think about uh, the level of automation on a single on an axis, and the other axis being the amount of autonomy you're empowering the user with, where exactly would the technology you're building fall? Right on this axis. Uh, a simple way to think about this is to break this down into four quadrants. Now, imagine the quadrant over here on the top right hand side has a high amount of automation, a high amount of human control. A good example that uh, Ben uh, brought up in his book was the digital camera. Right now, a digital camera is a sophisticated piece of equipment, right? Where if you are someone who's quite keen on using it to its full potential, you, you can dive deep into setting up the ISOs and you know everything else that flies straight over my head because I'm not uh, someone who's really, you know, that's not my field of expertise. I'll probably just point in the right direction and click, but there are others who can use it to the full potential and that gives you an awful amount of human control, right? If you so desire. And much can be said about a vacuum cleaner as well, right? We have uh, all kinds of robots that have increasingly been used during the pandemic as well. Uh, and they're quite sophisticated, but they're also highly configurable, right? You can tell your Roomba to clean specific rooms, not to go into other areas. You can help it map things that you want it to. So there's a fair degree of human control there. What about places where there's very low automation, but a high amount of human control, things like your manual musical instruments, right? There's not a lot of automation there, but there's a high level of human control. Think about things where there's a lot of automation, but uh, very little human control. And you can argue that's a desirable feature, right? Now a pacemaker, you don't wanna have a lot of control over that. Why? Because human error, 
human error is extremely costly if it can kill you, right? So pacemaker is perhaps by design, one of those examples where you don't wanna have a lot of automation. Same thing goes with an airbag, right? You want your airbag to come into play when you need it in times of strife. You do probably don't have time for human control to come into play there. And you have examples with, you know, we're probably not gonna build technology for in that space where there is low amount of human control, low amount of uh, automation, but, but you might come up with examples where your systems would fall in that bracket as well, right? But I think for the most part, the you know difficult design choices we might have to articulate would probably fall into these quadrants where you're trying to balance out, you know, should I have greater human control? Should I have greater human control or should I have, you know, greater automation? What's the sweet spot? And you could also argue that having excessive human control is not something that's desirable, that it might not lead to the greatest user experience, right? And in the same breath, having excessive automation could also be equally risky, right? You wanna be able to have humans jump in and identify correct flaws that you may not have thought about before, right? If history is telling us anything, it's that, you know, it's, it's very difficult to design and build systems that are absolutely right all the time. You might be right, most of the time, but you know, it sort of, again, depends on what kinds of systems you're building, but if they're systems that evolve or uh, rely on dynamic mechanisms, then you, know, you should be very careful uh, not to just associate that with a constant level of performance, right? Because users also change, evolve over time. It's a constantly evolving ecosystem, right? That being said, and understanding that this is quite a difficult balancing act, let's also look at what are the non-functional requirements. Uh, if you're you know, an HCI person and you're trying to understand what are the functional requirements and non-functional requirements of the systems that you're building, you can think of these as some of the non-functional requirements, right? Uh, you, you want your systems to be trustworthy, reliable, explainable, safe, unbiased, robust, fair, secure. And a lot of other adjectives have been thrown into these discussions uh, across the board. I've circled out two of these because I'd like to dive into these two uh, to a greater level of detail and having had some conversations with y'all, I figured these are the two important ones that would be relevant over here. Now let's take a look at trustworthiness of systems or trust in general, right? And I position a lot of this work at the intersection of AI and HCI, this new and evolving, exciting space of explainable AI. So what is trust? I guess many of us here have certain interpretations of trust. Do you have any ideas? Can, can someone say, hey, this is what trust is to me? Any ideas in the room here? By this, yeah, sure. I feel like I trust something. Um, I feel like if I, if I trust something, I feel like I don't necessarily need an explanation from it because I trust mm -hmm. that it's making the right decision on my behalf which I know kind of goes a bit against the explainable AI uh, kind of mantra of using explanations to try and cultivate trust. But yeah, I feel like if you, if you do trust something, it's because you kind of have faith in it more mm -hmm. so than anything else, I guess. Okay, interesting interpretation of trust. So we, we've heard from Ed here who says, well, if, there's, if I trust something, then I don't need to know more about it, right? I, I, it comes from a place of faith, all right? Any other interpretations of trust? Yes. So in addiction to X, uh, to, to Edward's explanation, I, I think I trust means that I, I, I trust this machine and then it does, I, I know that it does, it knows what I want. Mm -hmm. And also besides of this, and also a trust would be, I know that if, if something happened, I can control it. Okay. Yep. Excellent points, right? So both of you, all right, I see that uh, we have another. Yeah. Um, I think trust is like, I believe this model, like the, the system is perfect or a per, like close to perfect. Mm -hmm. So it can, uh, it might break down sometimes, most of the time, or even in critical um, moments, it will mm -hmm. help me to, it will, it will make, uh, it will work. All right, yeah, so I think all of you are right to some extent, right, in different uh, senses, you are sort of getting to that space where you could articulate what trust is. Let me share one of the definitions that I particularly like, 
right? And I think it's extremely uh, useful to operationalize this particular definition in the context that we're all playing in, right? The human AI interaction space, human AI decision-making space. Uh, and this is a definition that, came, that Lee and C came up with back in 2004. Now, the attitude that an agent will help achieve an individual's goals, right? One or two of you spoke about how you could rely on this system to do what you want, right? Or to behave in a fashion that you expect it to, right? So that's hidden in this whole notion of an individual's goals. Is this agent going to help me achieve those goals? But what's pivotal in this definition, and I've underlined that for you all, is the fact that this notion is one that will crop up only in contexts where there's some amount of uncertainty and some amount of vulnerability. Now, in a context where there is no uncertainty and no vulnerability, I'd argue that there is no question of trust manifesting, right? Let's break that down a little bit and let's use a sort of societal construct of trust that all of us implicitly have and embody and use to you know, live our everyday lives in, in a seamless fashion. I'll give you an example of something all of us did just to get here from the other building, right? We crossed a couple of streets, didn't we? Now, when you're crossing a street, you're probably looking at the traffic lights, you're using zebra crossings for the most part, jaywalkers day. Um, what's essentially happening though, is there is some amount of uncertainty here, right? You're not entirely sure whether you're gonna get to the other side arguable, <laughs> right? But you're relying on the societal transactional trust that's been built and used to make decisions for time immemorial to do exactly that. You know that there's a car and there are buses there and you're trusting the folks inside those vehicles not to run you over, right? So you're there is some amount of vulnerability. What's stopping this person from hitting the gas and you know, running you down? But they don't do that, right? Or you believe that they don't do that. They won't do that. So that's the societal trust that you're, you're sort of working on top of to achieve your task of crossing the road. Now, it's a very similar context in which you know, people operate with AI systems or with AI-assistant systems, right? Where th there's probably some amount of vulnerability that's attached to the situation where, well, if I don't have this AI system or if I don't have this automated uh, advice, I'll have to deal with an exponential amount of data. And I can do that because that's not what humans are uh, great at doing, right? But machines are really great at being able to uh, handle large amounts of data. So maybe that's a space that you would be willing to get some assistance on, right? So there's a need for it. There's vulnerability because, well, if you, if you rely on the advice that a system's giving you, you might get it wrong. It's probably not a perfect system all the time, right? So it's contexts like those where trust is meaningful. And if you're not studying trust in a context where there's uh, vulnerability, or if you're trying to study trust in a context where there's no vulnerability or no uncertainty, then I'd argue that that's meaningless, right? So something that's food for thought for all of us here who are trying to design studies where, you know, there's uh, some amount of human AI interaction and we're trying to understand trust and reliance on systems. So what is trustworthy AI? Now, trust, as we've defined and we're talking about it, does not imply that there's trustworthiness in the system. Let's break that down, right? This might sound like a you know, difficult thing to grasp, but it's not really. Imagine you have a fancy little package, right? And we as humans tend to make sense of the world around us by taking a lot of shortcuts, right? So if you're someone who's interested in cognitive biases, and you've come across the cognitive bias codex, you know that there's this gigantic wheel with a zillion biases that we uh, could potentially fall prey to, but we rely on them in effective fashions to make sense of the world around us, right? There's just an information overload from left, right, and center, and you have to you know, process information selectively. So we do a lot of things at a subconscious level just to make sense of the world, bottom line, right? And a part of that also might lead to assuming a system is trustworthy because of how it looks or how it feels, as opposed to truly understanding whether or not you're trusting it for the right reasons. Now, that's where the notion of trustworthiness is all hidden, right? When, you're, when a system is trustworthy, then it means it will behave in a fashion that you expect it to. 
right? But if you trust the system because it looks nice, then you know that's probably the wrong reason. And then that's the context where you know you're trusting an untrustworthy system, right? So trust does not imply tr trustworthiness, but trustworthiness also does not imply trust, right? So these are orthogonal concepts that don't have to coexist. And that's where the notion of warranted and unwarranted trust comes out, right? So warranted trust is a system that's trustworthy for the right reasons, and therefore the trust that is built with users is warranted. Now, if there's a system that looks good or acts good and garners trust from users for the wrong reasons, that's unwarranted trust. So what do we take away from this? The desirable outcomes for us is we want to have warranted trust, and we also want to have warranted distrust, right? It's great to empower users to distrust your system when it needs to be distrusted. That's essentially how you'll reach complementarity, uh, right? Uh, in the context of human AI collaboration, this notion of team complementarity is gathering traction for the right reasons, right? You need to know when should I rely on the system? When's the system better off than I am? When is it better equipped to reach the right outcome than I possibly am, right? So that's warranted trust and warranted distrust. And you don't wanna have unwarranted trust and equally, you don't wanna have unwarranted distrust, right? Laying the groundwork for what's to come. Now, now that we've processed trust, what exactly is trust going to do anyway, right? Trust often has to do with our beliefs, but we aren't just a species that believe. We're also a species that behaves, right? Now, from belief to behave, that's where your trust transforms into reliance. And reliance is something that we tend to do on a regular basis these days, and reliance on AI systems, right? Let me walk you through an example. Let's imagine we're all driving our cars and we have a sat-nav system that's been using you know, data from the cloud, uh, from different sources, to give you live advice on whether or not you should turn right here, turn left there, whatever, right? We've all been in these situations. Now, if you rely on a system to a great extent, uh, and over time it's served you well, you might build what's called an over-reliance as a result of over-trust, right? And thanks to that, you might end up relying on the system when you shouldn't. Imagine the live data doesn't catch the point that the speed limit has changed, you might overspeed in a zone you shouldn't. And equally, if you distrust the system, you might not take advice from the sat-nav system and you might get stuck in traffic, right? When it's recommending an alternative route. So you don't want misuse as a result of overtrust, but you also don't want disuse because the user's then losing out on a potential benefit, right? So how exactly can we get that right? And well, here we're playing around in a scenario that's not all that high stakes, right? Uh, should I turn right or left while well, you're stuck in traffic for a little longer? But the stakes can quickly change in the outcomes as well, right? And we don't want that. Here's a small example from one of my own experiences last year, right? So I'll use a Garmin watch. Uh, many of us have, you know, fitness wearables or whatever else that we use. And we see that technology is, you know, seeping into our lives in many ways. And Garmin Insights is one of Garmin's ways of saying, hey, I'm processing all of your data and I'll give you some meaningful things that you can act on, right? And this was probably a week in November. I was probably chasing a deadline, right? things we do as academics. And I had a tough week where I didn't get to sleep much. I slept for about five hours a day from Monday to Friday. And I was like, well, let's compensate with sleeping a bit longer on the weekends, right? So I slept for seven hours a day. And then what Garmin got from that was that, hey, your sleep patterns all kinds of messed up. It's great to be consistent, right? That's the advice that the doctors give you. So what that essentially means is you slept too long on the weekends. You should have stayed you know, sleeping for five hours a day. But luckily for me, I'm not taking this advice for granted, right? But also note, again, this is a small example where uh, I could now stop trusting Garmin Insights. Since then, I mean, I mean, you know, that's it's quite conceivable to say me as uh, who I am, I, I'll say this is a terrible algorithm, I'm not gonna use it, right? I'll check out the next insight, see whether they're doing better. But we're also in a world where, you know, not everyone's privileged to have the education or the exposure to some of these concepts that we do. And a lot of lay people are encountering um, you know, advice from systems that might nudge them towards decisions that are ill thought out, right? Again, there's a very small example, right? Easy to navigate this difficult situation, right? 
but not every situation will be that. So why exactly do we need to think about trust? Why do, you need, why do we need to talk about trust often? So in this context, I think trust plays a central role in human AI interaction because incorrect levels of trust, as we saw in that example, can cause misuse, abuse, or disuse of AI technology. And one of the things that you know, we can take solace in is the fact that different research communities have studied interpersonal trust for time immemorial, right? We're not, you know, the first ones to think about these questions and different fields have, you know, unpacked a lot of complex things here. So what can we learn from such goals uh, that have been studied in interpersonal trust? So why do we attribute trust to each other? You know, for example, I, I trust Damiano not to just get up and come and slap me like Will Smith did, you know, Chris Rock. Why? Because, well, there's some amount of interpersonal trust that we've built over the years that we've known each other. And what does that do? It allows Damiano and myself, or Danula and myself, to now collaborate on things, right? Our goals are, is, are not to like build trust in each other. When I woke up this morning, I didn't think, hey, I have to like get Damiano's trust no matter what, right? Or I didn't think the same about Danula. But maybe a goal that I could have now is, hey, I have to you know, collaborate with these guys. So we are, it's not a goal to create trust, because, but we want trust because it makes our life predictable, right? Knowing this, knowing that Damiano won't get up and come and slap me means I can be at ease, right? Not covered away in a corner waiting to get slapped, right? So that makes your life predictable. That's essentially what you need to think about while designing AI systems. Why is, why is it that you wanna make things predictable? Because that allows you to collaborate with people, right? We're a social species. We tend to collaborate and benefit out of those. So when you're thinking about transporting that definition into the context of human AI interaction, obtaining trust in a machine can make it easier to anticipate machine decisions. That's essentially why you want explanations. You want to empower users to understand the system so that they can expect how the system will behave. And understanding how the system will behave will allow you to rely on it in a better fashion, right? So let me re-articulate, and Tim Miller, uh, you know, excellent researcher in the area of social sciences has synthesized this in ways I couldn't possibly imagine. So I, for those of you who are you know, not familiar with it, big shout out to Tim Miller. And it's important for us to remember that the trust that you're trying to elicit is not our end goal, right? Our end goal is to use this trust as a mechanism to facilitate collaboration and predictability of the systems that we're building. Now, with that being said, I'll walk you through a series of some of the works we've done to try and push the envelope towards building better human AI interactions. In this piece of work, we collaborated with a bunch of uh, behavioral economists who have a lot of interesting ways of defining and designing experimental setups, but also very powerful frameworks that can translate and generalize to other contexts, right? So we used what's called uh, ultimatum uh, bargaining game. And I'll talk to you about that and explain it in a little bit. What we're really interested in asking in this question was, in this piece of work, was how does dependence on a decision support system affect the behavior of people, right? Do people rely on uh, those systems and does that make their lives easier? Uh, are, are there other people who are indirectly impacted by these systems, right? One of you is particularly interested in a question like those, uh, like that one, sorry. So what's the ultimatum bargaining game? In the ultimatum bargaining game, you have in the simplest single shot setup, you have two players. One of them's a proposer, the other one's a responder, right? Now, just let's imagine that Mark's quite happy that you know, I'm here today and says, hey, you know what, Danula and uh, Ujwal, here's a hundred Australian dollars from you know, ADMS slash RMIT. Go do what you will with this tonight. But you guys have to split this, right? And if you manage to agree on the split, you guys can go ahead and enjoy it. But if you disagree, you get nothing. I'll take this hundred bucks back and be on my way, right? That's essentially the ultimatum bargaining game. There's an endowment. The proposer now has the right to make an offer to the responder. If the proposer makes an offer, the responder agrees. There's an accept, both get the share. Reject, both get nothing. Simple context, right? Now we use that context because that's a very simple context that can generalize to other areas where there's bargaining involved. Uh, and we ran a series of interactions between humans. And using those interactions, we trained a model that could then advise a proposer in a similar context, right? And we tried to see in an incremental experimental fashion, how exactly introducing this support system 
would influence the bargains that were being made in the interactions in the human behavior, right? And then we added another layer of explanations on top of this algorithmic decision support system and tried to observe what that would do. Long story short, and I'll encourage you to take a look at the paper, we found that the perceptions of fairness changed due to the introduction of the ADM system in this human decision-making context, right? So people just thought, now that you've introduced this new autonomous decision support system, that, oh, it's not all that fair anymore. A responder who is trying to strike a bargain with a proposer felt that this was not all that fair, or there were notions of fairness changing because of this. We also found that adding explanations is an additional layer. So a better understanding of the ADM system increased cooperation among people, right? Food for thought. We went a step further and we tried to explore the space of decision-making even further because, well, nowadays we see that AI is being used in contexts like uh, hiring decisions, automated pricing, all kinds of interesting contexts, right? And again, we wanted to use this lens of the ultimatum bargaining game, uh, but used other interesting ways of eliciting beliefs from people. I'll explain this in a little bit. And we wanted to see, well, what's the effect of AI systems on human behavior in economic bargaining environments, right? In places, in things like trade auctions or wage negotiations, where there's a fair bit of bargaining to do, what's the role that algorithmic assistance can actually play? Now, when we are building and proliferating systems like these, we often operate on two assumptions, two important assumptions that get swept on the rug that I want to pull out today, right? One of those assumptions, and I'll call it a condition here, is for people to benefit from AI systems that you're building, you assume that people do not actively avoid the systems. Now, how good is an AI system that is absolutely robust and accurate for the most point if I do not rely on it, right? It's just sitting there, I don't wanna rely on it because I don't trust it or because I don't like it or whatever else. It's no good, right? But we're assuming that people will like it. How, how good is that assumption? The other condition is that AI systems should not or do not systematically err on predicting human choices, right? And quite often we build systems without truly exploring these two conditions. And we said, well, let's try and understand that space a little bit, right? And in some of our work that was published last year at Kai, we explored this question again, using this ultimatum bargaining game, just to give you a sneak peek, I'll tell you what we did in there, right? So we had a means to use the same setup again, the ultimatum bargaining game, but we used a sophisticated way to elicit beliefs from the human players. And in this context, we had uh, responders who could choose whom they wanted to interact with, right? Do you wanna get an offer from a proposer who's a human? Do you wanna get an offer from a proposer who's a human aided with an AI system? Or do you wanna get an offer from a proposer who is represented by an autonomous system on his, on his behalf, right? And we explored what came out of that. So one of our key findings was that responders preferred to approach human proposers, right? And this was despite the fact that it was evident that engaging in bargains with an AI system or an uh, AI system supporting the proposer would be far more beneficial right? They're, they could have more to gain economically if they relied on the alternatives. And this was obvious in their beliefs as well that we elicited. So they said, we know we can earn more, but we don't want to. We'd rather rely on the human proposer, right? Very interesting. And there were cases, don't get me wrong, this wasn't consistent. There were cases where there were responders who did interact with the autonomous systems or the humans aided by the autonomous systems, but they wanted to get a greater share to succeed on those transactions, right? So those who wanted to interact with the autonomous system demanded larger shares of the pie. Interesting observations. Now, all of this is again in that context of how do you, to what extent do you trust systems? How do you then behave based on that trust? So what is your reliance like? And one of the difficult things to do, and this is really where the community is now, you know, scratching our, the, our collective heads is how do we articulate and design mechanisms to propagate appropriate reliance, right? Appropriate reliance is relying on the system when the system is potentially right, relying on yourself and not relying on the system rather when it's potentially incorrect. Easier said than done, right? Which is why explanations are being used increasingly because the hypothesis is that by giving the user or empowering the user to understand the machine decision-making process, we can empower them to figure out when this decision 
process is probably wonky and should not be relied on, right? Very difficult to get the spot on. And I love this um, notion that Schema et al. came up with um, last year, where they said, hey, the sweet spot of appropriate reliance is here when you think about it along the axis of relative positive AI reliance, which is to what extent do you rely on the AI advice as opposed to yourself? And how does that compare to relying on yourself in comparison to the AI advice, right? And the sweet spot is right here because what this indicates is that you rely on it when it's right, don't rely on it when it's wrong, right? Easier said than done. So what, what have people been doing in this space? People said, well, what if I tell you how accurate the system is? Will that help? Right? I'll tell you this is a 75% accurate system. Will this improve the way you rely and interact with the system? What if I told you how confident the system is at the instance level when you're trying to make a decision in an informed fashion? Will that help you? What if I tell you how uncertain the system is? Will that help you? What if I gave you explanations? Can this help? Right? And the one common aspect that will underline all of these explorations is the fact that we have mixed results, right? There's no, there's no single thing that's out there that'll work for any given context, right? So there's a lot of unclear transferability that is characterizing the space right now. It's also something that we've been exploring uh, a fair bit in some of our recent works. So happy to share that this uh, piece that we were working on for two years after several rejections finally made it to CSCW. Uh, you'll catch it later this October in the US if you're visiting. And uh, one of the ideas we had, and this, this was something that was born out of th this fascinating book I once read uh, called Analogy is the Fuel and Fire for All Reason, right? And in that, the authors were articulating why exactly we as humans tend to think using analogies constantly at different levels, right? And we as educators as well, and many of us can relate to that, tend to use analogies in our classrooms to explain complex things to students and mapping them onto things that we know our students already understand. Right? So an analogy is a structural mapping of a target domain onto a domain that you want to be that you want to clarify, right? So you 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 want to uh, clarify that onto a source domain that you know your recipients are familiar with. And we said, well, what if we took certain things that you know the common person and we, you want to help out lay people with these, right? Uh, experts probably have sufficient knowledge to navigate some of these difficult standpoints or, or junctures, but lay people probably could use more to rely in a meaningful fashion because the explanations are quite often single shot. And you know, as, as I was saying earlier today, explanations are presented to people and then you say, well, good luck, use the explanation as you will and I hope you will succeed, right? Not good enough. We said, what if we could add a layer of analogy on top of that so people understand what this means, right? There are lots of differences across numeracy levels and familiarity with AI and technology. That means people would behave differently with uh, or interpret explanations differently, right? What if you could add a layer of analogies that could tell people a little bit more and, and allow them to act on the explanation, right? So what if I was to tell you that because I assume that you understand how regular one of your trains is that you're taking every day. And if I knew that, could I, transported an analogy onto that and say, hey, this system's as accurate as this train that you know really well and how punctual this train is that you've been taking every day, every week for you know, several years, right? Because now you attach this sense of familiarity, this domain that you've been playing in, and you can, uh, you can sort of transfer that onto how you wanna interact with the system, right? So we explore certain things in that. Lots of caveats as well, as you can imagine, this, this uh, lots of individual dispositions that can affect the uh, effectiveness of analogies in general. But we also wanted to explore how you can generate analogies, right? Because we had enough evidence to say, well, this is good. People tend to benefit from analogies, but under certain contexts, the analogies have to be things that they're familiar with or they can actually relate to. And we said, well, how can we generate analogies? And what exactly is a good quality analogy anyway? Right? And that's something that we uh, explored uh, in, in this piece of work that was uh, presented at HCOMP last year, uh, won an award. And I'll walk you through with an example, right? And I think concept level explanations are one of the most common explanations that are being used today. Uh, for those of you who have been playing around in the computer vision domain, you probably recognize the lines and shap sort of methods where you 
you can highlight certain areas, regions of images and assign concept labels to them and you know, help users interpret these labels, right? Now, let's take this concept level explanation where uh, you've highlighted in a textual task, the concept level explanations are often feature attribution methods, right? And you highlight those key terms that have led to this uh, prediction. And over here, the target sentence is with Kribi form and fused lance and needle core biopsy from prostate, this is diagnosed as being the adenocarcinoma of the prostate, right? All kinds of Greek and Latin for people who are not familiar with the field. But imagine you want to explain this to a layperson who lacks the scientific background to really process why this decision has been made or why this prediction has been made and to what extent this you know, is a reliable diagnosis. And you can use an analogy there and say, well, cribiform infused glands in a needle core biopsy is definitely a sign of the prostate cancer. It's like recognizing a unicorn due to the horn on its head, right? Now, a layperson doesn't know anything about the cancers, but can probably attribute confidence in recognizing a unicorn because of the horn that they're familiar with that territory, right? And they can probably say, hey, all right, this is probably a right diagnosis, right? I can attribute some amount of transferable confidence from this domain to the other. Again, lots of caveats. What's a high quality analogy? Please do refer to the paper. We uh, tried to synthesize a lot of different dimensions and articulate how to uh, generate these analogies as well using human computation workflows. And we're now trying to work on generating these automatically. But let me give you an analogy to explain our idea a little further, right? Now, I would argue that for the most part, most of these explanation methods that are being developed and propagated these days are focusing on experts, important, right? But maybe that's only the tip of the iceberg. Uh, as you can look around you and understand and imagine how uh, lay people are probably the greatest demographic that are getting affected by AI systems that are being propagated, it's important to also think about that user group, right? Now, experts have their expert knowledge and they can use these concept level explanations, which some can argue variants of which are state of the art today. Uh, they can use that, get onto that ship of expert knowledge, get across their concept level explanation and reach appropriate reliance and build appropriate trust. What about lay people? Can they rely equally well on these explanations? Perhaps not, overwhelmingly not, if you look at some of the evidence from other studies. Lay people don't have this beautiful little ship or a sailboat to get on. All they have are, are a pair of shoes. But what we intend to do is build a bridge across the server that lay people can get in their shoes on and still get across the bridge, right? Onto the space of appropriate trust and reliance. That's the idea. Now, there are a lot of other things that can shape how trust evolves when people are interacting with AI systems. One of the critiques that I have and my pet peeve in this space is people often look at it from the standpoint of a single human interacting with a single system in a single decision-making context. But we as humans tend to make decisions not in that fashion, right? We tend to, I, if, I wanna buy, uh, if I wanna buy a property, I'm not just looking at this automated system that is advising me, probably gonna also interact with my friends. I'm probably gonna look at a competing system that's giving me more advice, or I'm probably gonna build trust over time, right? It's not a single interaction that builds trust. So you have to look at that in a temporal fashion. Otherwise it's limiting. It's valuable because you understand a lot of things, but it's still limiting, right? It's not highly ecologically valid because that's not essentially what's happening on a regular basis in the real world. So we've explored some of these things, how do multiple interactions affect, uh, you know, trust formation and reliance there was overwhelming evidence in the past from different fields that showed how important first impressions of systems are. Uh, but we also found in our work that it's possible to recover from tr a trust that's lost. Uh, and there are different ways. I'll be happy to talk about this later if that interests you. We've also looked at the role of explanation modalities, right? How do you present explanations to people? Which modality do you pick? Uh, are you choosing uh, graphical representations of explanations? Are you using textual explanations? Are you using voice modalities? How does this affect uh, you know, explanation consumption and understanding? These are usually design choices that people just make because hey, we're, we're more keen on how well, uh, you know, our, the fidelity of our explanation as opposed to how well people can understand the explanation, right? What about AI system metaphors and anthropomorphism, right? In some of our work, uh, 
published with Kai last year, we were, we were talking about how you can uh, use metaphorical representations of agents in order to impart certain expectations. Now, if I was to tell you that, hey, this is an AI system and I'm calling it a toddler, you'll rely on it differently as uh, in comparison to an AI system that I would present to you and compare with the metaphor of a trained professional, right? So you have a way to shape expectations among, uh, of people and that can help them rely on uh, AI systems in improved fashions, right? How exactly can conversational interfaces play a role there, right? Uh, humans tend to interact with each other uh, using conversations day in and day out. And that's just a domain of familiarity that people tend to associate more levels of trust with. Lots to say about all of these things, but just wanna give you a high level view over some of the things we've been doing. And maybe the last thought that I'll leave you with is uh, cognitive biases, right? We've studied cognitive biases in a lot of different contexts. I know many of us here uh, also are quite interested in the information retrieval uh, setup, right? And one could also argue that uh, there's, there are a lot of junctures of decision-making in that broad paradigm, which is also now quickly evolving into spaces of conversational search, right? And much like in any other context, cognitive biases play a role and more so I would argue in a context where you're trying to take advice from an AI system. So what we did was we tried to explore whether or not the Dunning-Kruger effect would play a role. No, no brainer to say, yes, it did. But what's interesting is, uh, you know, that uh, th this also goes to uh, shape uh, interactions and outcomes differently for different groups of people, right? So we can't treat all individuals in the same fashion. I'll be happy to talk about this further as well. What we essentially saw and observed was that if you overestimate your competence in a task that you're trying to accomplish along with the opportunity of relying on an AI system that can assist you, if you overestimate your competence, there's a good chance you're gonna under rely on the system and the task outcome is probably gonna be poorer than it could have been and you know, falls short of ha having that ideal complementarity in, in that human AI collaboration, right? So it's important to also think about how to mitigate cognitive biases from shaping those interactions. Uh, I'll just skip through this because I sense that I'm running out of time. Uh, what are our takeaways? I sort of articulated this to an extent already, but what we did in our work was we studied whether or not tutorial interventions in such decision-making contexts can help empower people to become more critical of the systems and therefore rely on them more appropriately. We found that uh, tutorial interventions can indeed calibrate user self-assessments, uh, especially when they're overestimating themselves. Uh, but what it can also do is it can you know, make you a little critical to an extent where you just stop relying on the system a little bit, right? So now as opposed to, over-reliance, which was, oh, sorry, under-reliance, which was present earlier on. Uh, sorry, or over-reliance, which was present earlier on. Now people start under-relying on it as well, right? So either, uh, there's always a trade-off that's apparently associated with this. We also found that, uh, well, or our assessment of the situation was that a tutorial that's more effective is probably one that helps users to understand themselves better alongside understanding the AI systems better, right? For the most part, people are always focusing on, let's explain this AI system better, right? What can I do to improve the understanding of the user of the AI system? But a user should also know about the user's own shortcomings and that can improve complementarity in the human AI collaboration, right? Equally important. So I think this is my last slide. And this is, I think, a collection of some of the things that I think are grand goals that we need to overcome as we try to push the envelope towards appropriate reliance. And this is essentially the decision-making space when we're designing a lot of studies in empirical human-centered AI studies that you know, we could go quite wrong, right? Uh, so when, what affects the ecological validity of some of the empirical studies that we're witnessing around us? A lot of times you have to make design choices around the tasks and the scenarios that we're picking and choosing. And that can influence what we find. And now Tom, Dick and Harry can find one thing, you know, Lucy, Susan and someone else will find something else. How do I know that these findings compare to each other? How can I transfer a set of findings into contexts that haven't been explored before? Very difficult to do because of the uh, nature of empirical rigorous science, right? What about stakes, right? People often say, well, this is a high stakes domain. I'll just to, you know, for the, for the sake of rigor, I'll also pick a low stakes domain. 
I'll compare these two beautiful plots. Reviewers happy, accepted paper. What about progressive science, right? We don't really know whether this calibration of a high stake is any different from another calibration of high stake. How do I know that a low stake task in one paper is equally low in another paper, right? Quite difficult to do, important nonetheless, right? What about trust measurement? I already spoke a little bit about this. People often isolate trust and measurements and models of trust in single interactions. I think we need to look at this from a temporal standpoint, right? How can we model trust that is not coming from a one is to one interaction, but an N is to N interaction where it's not just a single, it's not a one human versus one AI system. Maybe it's many humans with many AI systems, very complex to study, very important to study, right? Maybe that's where the real science is. And individual differences, right? There, there are a plethora of confounds when it comes to domain knowledge, familiarity. How do you control for all of these factors? How do you understand? And what about generalizability in that space? What about expertise? What about lay people, right? And uh, I said at the start of my talk that, you know, we were trying to look at building effective human AI decision-making for everyone. Now, what does everyone mean in context of empirical work? Are we truly focusing on samples that go beyond the weird acronym, right? So Western, educated, industrialized, rich Democrats, right? Are we looking at everyone or are we not? And so these are some of the things that we can think about as we try to move ahead. I had a few tips. I don't know whether you would like me to conclude quickly, but I'm also happy to just go a couple of minutes longer to share some of our findings that resonate with some of the prior work in the field that talk about this. I said this before, but when you're designing experiments, I think it's extremely important to make sure you're operationalizing some amount of vulnerability, because in the context where there's no vulnerability for the user, there's no question of, of trust, right? And it's also important to manipulate trustworthiness of the system, because the systems that we're gonna build and deploy are never gonna be absolutely accurate, right? If it is an absolutely accurate system, there's no context of appropriate reliance, just reliant all the time, right? So, it's important to manipulate trustworthiness as well. You need to have experiments where that manipulate trustworthiness if you really want to study something meaningful. So we know that state of the, this is the state of the art of measuring trust right there on your screens, right? You have subjective ratings, you have qualitative interviews, you have questionnaires, but when you use those subjective qualitative methods alone, you're only going to get at best a little noisy you know, assessment. But to be more sure about what you're measuring, I would say you should always accompany that measurement with a reliance or behavior-based measurement, right? But also remember and acknowledge the fact that there's always a gap between trusting beliefs and trusting behavior, right? You might tell me I trust this AI system and then I ask you to interact with it, you might not behave in a fashion that exemplifies the trust you believe you have, right? What else? Uh, some of the other guidelines we learned use tasks that correspond to clearly measurable performance, right? If you add another layer where there's subjectivity to what is good performance, then a noisy measure gets noisier, right? So at least when you're trying to study these things, pick tasks where it's obvious what good performance means, right? Ensure there's some amount of vulnerability to risks. And there are clever ways of doing this. It's not that it's this hard task that cannot be done, right? You just need to be creative about it. I have to think about how can I incentivize or use uh, rewards or different pricing schemes that will make people behave in a fashion that they actually would if they were to encounter this context in the real world, right? So it takes thought, a lot of creativity sometimes, but it can be done. And it's critical that you do that, right? Because otherwise you're not using an ecologically valid experiment anymore. Use reliance at least as one of the measures of trust and manipulate trustworthiness. These are the takeaways, right? Now, I did say you should hold that thought at the back of your head. I said Sisyphean was constantly you know, rolling this boulder, Sisyphus rather, was constantly rolling this boulder up the hill and back down. And in you know, general jargon, when we use the analogy or the metaphor of a task being a Sisyphean task, you're trying to attribute that this is a difficult, laborious task, but quite often you're also saying this is a futile task, right? But I would argue that as laborious as the process of getting this right might seem to be, it's an extremely important one. And we might be able to build little by little through small you know, amounts of progress one at a time, but it's by no means futile, 
right? Because I think this is an important area that we need to crack if we really want to create a world where people can benefit from interacting with AI systems. You want to amplify human abilities. You want, if, if you want to do all those grand things and achieve those things, you need to be able to crack this difficult notion of how can I foster appropriate reliance, right? So Sisyphean task, perhaps, but not futile. Thanks for listening to this episode of the ADMS podcast, Automated Societies.